Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson! Lawson. How are you this morning, Lawson? Oh, I'm so good. I'm just wiping tears of laughter away from my eyes. Oh? Because things are just so funny. Yes. Well, you know, the little intro jingle just played and Shell was doing a little dance in the studio and it was, that was quite funny. Um, but also, <laughs> during, the, during the news segment just then, the guy said, um, I think it was like, oh, Omicron and a few other things are amongst the most mispronounced words this year. And one of the words was like Dogecoin, but he mispronounced it and said Dogecoin. And I'm like, that's so funny. That's so funny. <laughs> Dogecoin is a, is a great name for it, though. I think they should call it Dogecoin. Just stay away from it. Like, dodgy. Yeah, it is dodgy. But it's, yeah, it's pronounced Dogecoin. And, and Lyle's like, because I said that to Lyle and Lyle was like, oh, well, like, you know, what if you've been pronouncing it wrong? And I'm like, Lyle, like the word Doge has been around for like pretty much 10 years at this point. And the point that it's making of everyone's mispronouncing it still and he mispronounced it. Oh, it got me. I thought it was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what are you grateful for this morning? Oh, let me think. What am I grateful for? Okay, so um, Empower. Yeah. That was awesome. Did you speak there yesterday? I did. I did, did too. Yeah. We both did. I, I was like the first speaker. I think you were, what, the last speaker? I was the last one. There you go. So I had a bit of a late night, which is not healthy for breakfast radio hosts, yep. but nevertheless, it was a blessing. Obviously, I wasn't there because I don't care about the things you say. That's right. <laughs> we know how this works. We are well familiar with your <laughs> Hey, well, you, you didn't come to mine. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> uh, but, dude, so what, what were you, what it was. We, we were speaking on, uh, on, the, on the concept of salvation and how do you wow. lead a person to Christ. We spoke, I spoke on uh, the sanctuary and mm. the judgment. Oh, it was fantastic. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Six, nine. Let's talk about some positively different news this morning, Lawson. What have you got for us? Okay, positively different news. We're starting off with one of those stories. It's like, is it positive or is it not? I'll let you guys decide. Okay, so as we know, uh, (laughs) as we know, Instagram has been under and the Facebook group in general has been social media social media but specifically Instagram has been under fire because you know a couple months ago they were like oh we're gonna make Instagram with kids and then a whistleblower from Facebook came out and was like oh actually Instagram has all this well Facebook has had all this research done that has found that Instagram is actually really harmful to teens and that most teens feel like it's actively worsening their life, yet they're addicted to it. And then it's like, why would we make this for kids? And so they've just been... Because gr- they'll make money out of it. That's why they're going to make it for kids. That's right. So they've been getting absolute, gr- absolutely grilled. And it's actually, I believe, tomorrow they're going to be... You know, uh, the representatives from Instagram are going to be standing before the... Um, before court in the United States, um, being grilled about online safety and addiction and, you know, going through the pro, the same process that Mark Zuckerberg essentially went through last year about things going on on Facebook. Um, but in response to this, uh, they have decided to put in some new features, some new measures to better, um, help the experience for young people. The first of which is that, um, accounts owned by people who are under 16, uh, will automatically be made private with the ability to be made unprivate 
like if this there's they've they've brought in this new kind of like parental guidance system this is this is the ultimate thing is that there never was that before like there's you know because unlike i think with with facebook it's a little bit more directed towards like oh you know you're a person and you have a personal profile or you're a page or a brand and you have a page and brand profile whereas all instagram profiles are pretty much the same Mm -hmm. um you can just start one about anything whether it's yourself or other people and so it's basically now they're they're putting a little bit more accountability into it um and giving also like on top of that so accounts for under 16s will automatically may be made private and only with permission from parents can they be made unprivate um they're also putting in measures of parents can monitor how much time their child spends on instagram um they're putting in this like system of you know giving you reminders of when you should take breaks um and if they're enforced by parents you can actually be locked out of instagram so so this is this is this is like to me the easiest thing in the world to get around yeah dude like this is this is the thing i'm I'm seeing i'm like reading this i'm like you don't have to confirm your identity to make an Instagram page. Yes. Uh, and, you know, maybe if they brought in facial recognition, then, but that then, that then brings in a whole slew of other privacy issues. That's right. You know, because they brought in facial recognition and that facial recognition is linked to something that actually has your real age on it, then maybe it would work. I remember, you know, when my kids were young and I think back in the day, Facebook was restricted for people who were, you know, 18 years or old. It was for adults. It, it wasn't for adults. It was for college students. You could only get in okay. if you had an EDU ad, like a, like a college um, or university email address. Yeah, well, whatever it was. But I remember at the time, uh, us being naive parents yeah. and sort of, you know, bad parents, we were like, like, we had our Instagram accounts. And so we not Instagram, uh, Facebook accounts, and we were enjoying Facebook. And so we were like, well, the kids would enjoy Facebook as well. Went to sign the kids up. Oh, no, they're too young. They, can't, they don't qualify. Can't get them in. So just made, gave them a fake, you know, profile and away they go. <laughs> yeah, oh, you dude, know? same. Like... Would never do that if I had my time over again. I, I, but think I, I think I said I was like 26. You know, I was born in like yeah, 1984. Exactly. Or and you something. were like, what, 13? <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, yeah, okay, they're, they're bringing all of these regulations in. But at the end of the day, parents have to self-regulate. That's right. You know, this this can't... Like, parents, parents just have to be parents. That's all there is to it. <laughs> that, yeah. Facebook and Instagram can't parent your children. And no. I think, like, but that's the thing, you know, we've seen systems where they've definitely tried. Like, for example, the the system in China that we've covered that, like, literally takes, like, facial recognition yes. um, and, like, you know, you have an account, like, it basically to play video games in China, you have an account that's, like, connected to your identity and it's the only way that you can get an account. And then after a certain amount of time or during certain periods of the day, you're completely shut out. It just cuts off. It just, no, it's done. Middle of the game, you're done. You're done. But I think like, you know, there's the other side of like, oh, well, then that stifles. Because whilst there is like (laughs) just on any social media platform, there's lots of trash. Um, There's also like lots of good things on Instagram, like in terms, because like you have the ability to be anonymous online. And for example, like I, I follow a few pages, like some of my favorite pages are about like, one, one of my favorite pages is, it's just memes about the Roman empire. It's like <laughs> yes. the funniest this thing. Is, this is Lawson this right is here. This is like one of my favorite accounts, but that's the thing. It's just completely anonymous. Some guy started it as a passion project because this I how, think- This is how millennials learn history. 
Really? By like, memes. Honestly, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, talking about like the Gallic Wars and like all this stuff in the form of memes. And then like they'll have like a big paragraph underneath it about what actually took place uh, uh, under the meme. Uh, but it's the point is, is that, yeah, you can use Instagram and people can use it for their passion projects and whatever it may be because it's not tied to identity. More so like Facebook is because there's that clear distinction between person and page. Whereas on Instagram, it's just like, oh, you can make it about you. You can make it about anything you want, um, which I think is a good thing. But in terms of regulating how much time people spend on there and whether they're exposed to harm or dangers, that is the job of the parents. And so, yes, yes Instagram are putting, you know, um, they're putting steps in place, but yeah, does it no. really change it's anything? It's not going to change anything. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Hey, in other news, this is actually really cool. This is this is really interesting. Scientists have created a chewing gum um, that copies the receptors um, of basically the cells which are most vulnerable to COVID. And so, basically, you pop one of these chewing gums in your mouth, and if there are any like viral, um, you know, COVID. Uh, you know, uh, virus things in your mouth, it'll just absorb them because it'll attack, it'll attack the chewing gum and then you can spit it out and move on with life. Okay, so the COVID attaches to the chewing gum and then you just spit out the COVID. That's right. That's interesting. It's super interesting. In, in, but what about the COVID that's in the rest of your body rather than just in your mouth? That's right. And so I think the point of this is, is like because of... Um, what about the COVID in your nose? Do they have chewing gum for your nose? Uh <laughs> Uh, I don't think so, <laughs> but I think the big, the big point here is like, because COVID is something that is airborne yes, and is spread through, you know, saliva, but you through know, your mouth, through your through mouth. nose, sorry, through your nose, through your nose. So let's do something in our mouth. Through, but it's through, it goes through your mouth as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So basically the, the idea is like, if you feel as though you've been in a heavy exposure area, you can pop one of these chewing gums and uh, at the moment, like this is in its very you know basic stages. This is still in the lab, but ninety five percent of any COVID virus in there will be absorbed and chucked away. Actually, I can see I can see something really valuable in this because one of the things they've been pointing out with COVID is you can get a heavy infection, a heavy initial infection, mm. or a light initial infection, and that really. Uh, relates to how your immune system responds. Now, I'm not a medical expert. Mm -hmm. This is just things that I've heard. But it takes a lot longer for your immune system to spool up and get on top of a heavy infection because there's so much more virus there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And because there's so much more virus, that virus has been replicating so much faster. And so, you know, this is why you get some healthy people that get smashed really hard with it because, you know, somebody sneezed on them. Whereas, you know, the person who just gets one vague COVID kind of thing floating through the air that infects them, they're, they've got, you know, a much bigger chance mm. for their immune system to spool up before it's able to reproduce to large numbers. And so maybe if you can reduce it through chewing gum, then that's a go. That's right. And the method is a bit, basically they've made the, the chewing gum out of angi, well, they've laced it with angiotensin converting enzyme 2, which is the, the enzyme that uh, COVID attacks. And they just get it to attack that. And as well as their breath, you know, being less COVID, it's also minty fresh. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, if you know the answer, you know the number to call. Make sure you save that number in your phone. We love to hear from our listeners. And so please get in contact if you can figure this one out. That's right. It's not a hard one. No. 
We make them easy for the first few, but they'll get harder. There's they a 500 pointer coming up. That'll test you out. All right, top five countries in uh, the in in Europe. Top, top five European countries for intolerance against Christians. Uh-huh. Okay, here we go. You want to know what's number one? Uh, yes. The UK. You want to know what's number two? Say the UK. Uh, France, Germany, uh- <laughs> Spain, and Sweden. In that order. So, no, Finland is not there, even though Finland has got Christians up on criminal charges for their faith right now. So I'm not quite sure why that is the case. And I think what it is is in it's all about you know in which countries is it the most endemic rather mm. than in which countries is it the most illegal. Mm. So they're not so much looking at uh, illegal issues here, but issues where intolerance against Christians is has become part of the culture. That is so interesting that Spain's on there. Yeah, I, because Spain. You lived there for a while. To this day, is very Catholic. Interesting. I, where I was living, I lived in Cartagena. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I lived in Madrid for one year. I lived in Cartagena for another year. And uh, particularly, in, like, Madrid is like a capital city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not crazy. You know, it's not as expressed there. I think there are churches around the place. And, you know, you go to Barcelona and in Barcelona is the construction of, like, the oldest Catholic church in the world that's being being constructed for over a thousand years or whatever it is. I forget what they call that cathedral, but yeah, the massive one in Barcelona. But then in Cartagena, like they do their festivals every year. They're like Easter. They have this one where they carry the Virgin Mary to the top of a hill, like a top of a big mountain, like just stuff like that. So mm. I find it maybe, maybe it's, things have well, changed since I've been there. And this is the thing. We, I think we underestimate just how rapidly our world is changing. That's right. Uh, these are 2019, 2020 stats that we're looking at. Mm. Um, and this data is from the OIDAC, which is the Observatory of Human Rights. Um, and what they've looked at is the prevalency of uh, intolerance for Christianity in legislation, in political discourse, in social exclusion, okay. and in criminal acts. Okay. And so they've noted that hate crimes against Christians are up by 70%. Oh, wow. Which is pretty, pretty big. Um, and it comes from two areas, secular intolerance and Islamic Islamic oppression of converts. Ooh, yeah. So this has become a big thing because you've got a lot of Islamic immigration into these countries, and, of course, you know, people who immigrate are generally going to be people who are more open-minded than people who don't. You know, people who are just sort of happily stuck in their rut typically don't move to another country, but people who are you know, open-minded kind of people looking for new ideas, new opportunities, etc. the kind of people who immigrate. And so when you've got a high level of immigration, you've also got a high level of um, a, a demographic that is open to not just changing countries but also changing religion. Mm. And so then that creates an environment in which you've got a high level of conversion from Islam to Christianity because, you know, people moving from Islamic countries to Christian countries and so mm. they begin to explore, you know, the culture of the country that they've moved to. And so there's been a fairly significant uh, oppression on converts, but nothing as big as primarily radical secularism that is actually the problem. Mm. So there is the Islamic thing, but it's primarily radical secularism. And uh, basically what radical secularism has been the agenda that they have been pushing is that religion should stay in the private sphere only and should have no public voice and no it has no place in you know public discourse. 
Sounds like the uh, French Revolution to me. <laughs> Sounds exactly like the French Revolution. That's exactly what it is. And, of course, this has been driven largely by stigmatisation in the media. So the media mm. has been you know, very, very vocal in stigmatising Christians as being judgmental and you know, intolerant and all this kind of thing. And so that has driven a whole new range of bigotry and intolerance uh, of Christianity. From the criminal side of things, what's interesting is that you know, traditionally churches were always left unlocked. Nobody ever locked a church. Doors were always open. Uh, the reason that they were always open was so that you know people often went to a church to find a quiet place to go and pray, mm. and uh, so you know churches would be left open because no one would ever think of doing a criminal act within a church. Mm. But now what you've got is all of these you know beautiful old cathedrals and so forth that are all over Europe are all locked now because of the level of vandalism that takes place if they leave them open as a place of you know. Quiet reflection and prayer and meditation, mm. which is really, really sad to see. Uh, they've also noted that Christians have the highest levels of self-censorship. And so this is when Christians you know, basically are in a conversation with secular people and they just don't say something because it's going to limit their influence, it's going to limit their uh, job opportunities, it's going to limit them within their uh, profession, you know, within that, their, their aims and so mm. forth. And so they just shut up and don't be a part of the discourse anymore. And this is one of the things that we've seen, you know, here in Australia where, you know, you talk about the quiet Australians and the quiet Australians are people who are self-censoring. That's what it mm. comes down to. They are self-censoring because they have been bullied into silence by bigotry and intolerance. Mm. And so we can see exactly the same thing happening here in Australia. Okay, moving across to the United States, um, and this is uh, a couple of Adventist hospitals this time, have suspended their vaccine mandates. So that's interesting. Oh, wow. In a hospital. And this is not actually uncommon across uh, a lot of hospitals in a lot of states right now. They are suspending their vaccine mandates, and it's for two reasons. Number one, Biden pushed through legislation to state that you know any company with more than 100 employees had to have all the employees vaccinated, mm-hmm. which is kind of a an odd kind of a law from the perspective that there are lots of companies with you know lots more than 100 employees. Say, for instance, the one that we're working for right now. Yeah. In this office, what would there be, 20, 30 people at the most? Something like that, yeah. But the actual, but, you know, when you look at the number of uh, pastors that it employs in the fields, there's probably 150 or more. Mm-hmm. And so, but they, these are people that sort of, you know, they never come anywhere near this office. Mm-hmm. And so just to have a blanket rule of, you know, number of people who are employed rather than number of people who are in proximity to each other is kind of strange. But anyway, it applies to hospitals and you can understand why it applies to hospitals. Uh, this is not uncommon for hospitals in that they would say, you know, you have to have your flu vaccine and this, that, this vax, that vax, the other. That's, you know, been part of history for a very, very long time. Of course, the COVID vax... Uh, because of its very, very new nature and some of the unknowns, you know, we don't know the long-term uh, implications of it, it has been a lot more controversial. And as a result of that, there's been a lot of people who, particularly in the States, have gone, yeah, I'm not going to have the vax, mm. which has resulted in some areas, 17.5% of hospital staff being laid off. Wow. Which is which massive. Is, like which is catastrophic. Yeah. It's actually catastrophic. You know, you look at the waiting lines that we have, you know, in hospitals right now, mm. and then you knock 7.5% of the workforce out. 
I think especially in like a like a hospital has so many employees. Yes. You know, seven seven 17% out of 10 employees like okay, there's two people missing. No, this is That's that's this, enormous. This is like a couple this could be hundreds of people. Yes. Mm. Okay. And so um the Biden mandates have been struck down by several courts in the United States. And you, then you've got hospitals that are struggling to survive and struggling to be able to, to provide any level of care. And they're like, well, we've got, you know, a balancing act here between providing some level of care or being on the verge of closing down and having massive waiting lists and not being able to provide for, you know, COVID patients and so forth. And they're like, well, the Biden laws have been struck down. We no longer have to require this as a mandate, so we're not going to make it a mandate anymore. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning, as always, on a Wednesday is David Halps. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to be back and good to speak to your listeners. Yes, we always enjoy what you've got to share with us. David, um, let's talk about let's talk about difficult in-laws this morning. Why, why is it that in-laws can sometimes be difficult and how do we actually navigate the whole uh, in-laws situation? Well, without trying to, uh, well, I'll, I'll try not to, I'll try and steer away from any files in, in the counselling room uh, because it can get us into trouble. But, um, yeah, it's quite interesting that sometimes we find that in-laws just do not accept a uh, uh you know, a son-in-law, daughter-in-law that their child has chosen. And uh, to some level, I have found that some in-laws are out there to try and break up that marriage. Sometimes they just ignore that individual, continue to uh, only connect with their own child, making it extremely difficult. And um, the big question is, why? What's behind all of this? You would imagine that you know, obviously, they they have a son or a daughter. They want that son and daughter to have a happy life. That son and daughter make a choice that they may or may not approve of. And if they don't approve of, you know, once that son or daughter has made that choice, then surely they're going. That son or daughter is going to have a happier life if that relationship works than if they tear that relationship apart. What what's what's the thought process and and how do we, how do we navigate? you know, toxic in-laws. Yeah. Well, sometimes uh, parents refuse to let go of the parental role over the child. I've had a situation, luckily far removed from Australia, where a, a couple actually got his son married, but they were dissatisfied with the person that uh, he chose and continued to maintain that parent-child relationship. And instead of the husband coming home after work and his wife had cooked up a beautiful meal waiting for him on, you know, with candlelight, um, she eventually would blow out that candle 10 o'clock, get into bed with a note on the table, food is in the oven. Uh, and the following morning, he would, uh, she would ask him, where have you been last night? Oh, I came home, I quickly popped in with mum and dad. Mum had uh, my favourite food ready and I sat down and I ate the meal. And uh, by the way, don't make breakfast for me. I'm heading back to mum and dad. I'm going to have breakfast with them. Well, the sad thing is that that relationship uh, did not last very long. There's a biblical principle 
that uh, God gives and found here in Genesis where it actually says that a, a husband needs to leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. So this is a responsibility that a husband had. Now, in biblical time, did that mean that the wife didn't have the same responsibility? The reality is no. She actually had already left her family in order to come to his house to be married to him. So it is, in actual fact, a command three ways because parents also have the responsibility to to cut the ties between them and their child and actually protect their child's marriage. As as a therapist, often I deal with marriages that are in crisis. And it is vital for me not to take the husband or the wife's side, but to take the side of the relationship. Because whenever I choose one or the other side and not the relationship, I've actually chosen to against the other, in other words, against the marriage itself. And this is a primary point that uh, parents need to realize. Another one is that often parents want the child to marry into their own culture, their, uh, their ethnicity. And when they don't, they fall in love with someone else. They oppose that. Uh, there are multiple reasons, but there's some biblical principles that need to be followed in each one of these cases. And when we don't follow those biblical counsel, we actually run into trouble. Yeah, so just in that last one that you were mentioning there about cross-cultural marriages, um, and I was talking to another counsellor one time and they were like, well, every marriage is a cross-cultural marriage, and I thought, well, there's probably a lot of truth to that. But, um, you know, you've got some great examples in the Bible of, of cross-cultural marriages, like, you know, say, for instance, uh, Ruth or, you know, Moses and so forth, uh, who married an Ethiopian. Um, you're somebody who's immigrated to, you know, from one country to another country. Is it unreasonable by when parents move to another country for them to place expectations on their children that they will only marry within their culture? I mean, that would make a very small pond to fish in if, uh, if they were to do such a thing. It would be, and both my kids are married uh, across culture to Australian culture. While we have grown up, uh, you know, with a different language and different culture, but it is right. Uh, Cannot just step back and say that any marriage, as that other counsellor said, actually brings into the equation a different set of values, different set of. Uh, you know, historical background, ways that, that they have, have grown up in. And therefore, it makes it already very stressful. And when parents actually choose that my child has to marry in a certain context, I actually contribute to the stress that could add to the uh, that, that marriage eventually breaking up. And this is why parents are vital and crucial uh, in helping their children to maintain a successful marriage. My daughter-in-law, my son-in-law, has to know that I will do my utmost best in my relationship towards my child and towards them to actually support them in their marriage. Once that child has made a choice, it becomes my responsibility as a parent to cut the ties from that parent-child relationship and then support them I will encourage them, and they often turn to me. But so many times my son comes to me and says, Dad, um, I, I, I would like to do this or that. What's your thoughts? 
My first question to my son would be the following. Have you already spoken to your spouse about this? And if his response is no, I say to him, I don't want to know anything. You first go and get her thoughts, her ideas. And when the two of you would like some further advice, then feel free to come to me. Mm, I think that is so important because, you know, one of the things that you know, I've noticed is that when, um, you know, for instance, when my in-laws come to visit, my daughter reverts, my, sorry, my wife reverts back to being their daughter. And I'm like, you know, I like to be married to my wife, not their daughter. And, you know, it's just one of those things that happens. And, and it, uh, you know, it's, 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 it is what it is. And so, you know, they're not going to stay forever and, and, and they move on. But if that was a permanent kind of a situation and, and that was always the way it was, it would make that relationship very, very difficult. And particularly if, you know, if, if she was to prioritize advice from her dad over advice from me, that would be very undermining of our relationship. It would be. And and often the giving over of that relationship that a parent has with a child actually becomes a, 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 a jealousy issue. In other words, a child, a, a parent refuses to cut those ties because having that child being reliant upon them actually strokes their own ego. So this is not about my child, it's really about myself. And that can create major problems in the marital uh, relationship. Do you think it's harder for single parents to give over that relationship when that child might be the only close family relationship that they actually have? It would be, but that is a sign of immaturity. Uh, that means that there's a codependency. There's a, uh, I, I need my child, I need my child to rely on me, to uh, always turn to me for advice in order for me to have an existence in my own self. And here becomes one of the biggest challenges in our relationship. Because even when, as a spouse, I have got problems with my in-laws, my in-laws got problems with me, it is a, a, a dangerous tendency to try and get them to like me, seeking approval. Uh, remember, love, I have no control over how another person is going to act and behave towards me. I've got only control about myself. And having to try and twist and turn the other person to like me or for me to maintain that connection actually is demonstrating of my own insecurity, mm. my own inability to, to navigate through life. Uh, look, as parents, we invest in our children when we invest so much in our children. But isn't it true that we actually invest in them training them up to be able to stand on their own feet, make their own choices one day? Or do we maintain that connection so that they will not mature and therefore have to rely on us? That is a crippled child. And I've worked with people where their children are well in the maturity age, well-educated, well-trained, but still reliant on uh, dad or mum giving their permission to go out, uh, even though they have attained success in the world, but they are still immature in their emotional connection at home. Now, that will create a problem in marriage later on. Mm, very much so. David, 
What about a situation, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, some in-laws that or some parents that, you know, they don't approve of the relationship for whatever it might, for whatever reasons it might be, and they either consciously or subconsciously try and break that relationship up so that, you know, maybe they can restore their relationship with their, with their son or their daughter or whatever the reason might be. For the couple in that relationship, how do they deal with that situation? Because, I mean, that would be incredibly tricky to be able to explain to your parent, look, you are, what you are doing here is destroying our relationship. Um, how, do, how do they actually navigate that when they've got an in-law that is incredibly toxic towards that relationship? How do they maintain a relationship with that in-law and still allow their marriage to survive? Let's start off with some biblical principles. Uh, the first one is that the couple needs to go to a higher ground. What does that mean? It means that they need to draw their strength, not from parents, but actually from God, and together have that focus and consistently go to God, asking Him to point out weaknesses in their own relationship that actually can prove the parents correct. In other words, go to God and ask, Lord, show me the way how we can strengthen our relationship. And they actually focus on building each other uh, in the context of a Christian marriage. Secondly, the Bible says, look at the log in your own eye. Search for, is there maybe, and this is especially for a, a spouse whose in-laws are against them, uh, look for whether there are things that actually they can change that could be cause a reason. Now, don't stay there. Once you've objectively uh, gone to a higher ground, ask God to, to look into your life and you've looked through your own life and there's none of that, or if there were, you've removed it. Um, it is important to try and to reconcile, go and be reconciled with the Bible. Don't talk to them, but also talk to your spouse. I often say to uh, couples that it is more, it, it's far better for a, a, a son or a daughter to talk to his parents and put boundaries down. I had to do it with my own parents. Um, my parents, especially my father, women's places in the house, men work outside. We were building our own, our own house in South Africa and my father just wanted to communicate with me. He had a problem with me bringing my spouse in, in the planning of my home, our home. And I had to put those boundaries down. Now, it wasn't easy, but it is uh, unfair to expect my wife to put those boundaries down. It's not her parents. I need to demonstrate to my parents the protection of my spouse, even against the relationship that I have with them, because that is a biblical principle that God is asking us. And for, for those parents to see the unity, the love, the support uh, that the couple has is vital. But here's another point that I would like to raise, and that is search in your own heart. If you are the, uh, the child that has been ostracized, make sure that you actually look for other ways of seeing the event. In other words, can it be that my in-laws are intentional trying to work me out, or is that maybe just the way that they operate as a family? Um, 
Well, I, I'm pretty sure you have seen families that are operating in a way where, you know, you scratch your head and say, how can that family function? But that is the, the way that they do function. And um, if that is the case, then I need to try and see how I can fit into that without being offended, without, you know, being pushed out. Mm, mm. David, thank you so much for sharing with us such good advice here this morning. In an area that, you know, coming up to Christmas time, we're going to be hanging out with family and, and so forth. So this is uh, very relevant for the time of year that we are in right now. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.